theyeshiva.net. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to start a new Mimer with you today. This week is Parshas Pinchas, and we're coming up to Parshas Matas and Masse next week. So we're going to begin a new Mimer that will continue Bezer Hashem this week, and then we'll continue with Oso next week. As always, you can ask your questions live, and I believe Nader will stop at some point and address your questions. You can either ask your questions on the chat in the Zoom room, or you can go to theyeshiva.net if you're watching there, and right below the video or near the video, it says ask your question, and you can put in your question there, and please open the source sheets, we're ready to begin. This mimer, this uh, Hasidic discourse, discourse in Hasidus and Hashkafe and Machshove that we're going to begin today, Bezer Hashem, was presented by the Lubavitcher Rebbe during the Fabrengen of Shabbos, Parshish Matos Masay, which was Mavarchim HaChaydish Menachem of the Shabbos before Chaydish of, in the year Tovshin Yud Beis, 1952. The Maimir is based on previous discourses and essays of Chabad Chassidus, already from the Bal Hatanya and his successes throughout generations, but the Rebbe took these ideas from the Balatanya and his successes and developed them and elaborates on them and explains them and expounds on them in this Maimer. It's a very, as you would say in Yiddish, a geschmake, gedichte Maimer, which means it's, it's delicious, it's delightful. And in many ways, I think when we internalize the ideas, it can be absolutely life-changing and deeply uh, transformative in our own lives. As I mentioned in the clip that went around, it really deals with fundamental ideas, both in terms of the internal struggle and condition of man, as well as the cosmic struggle, and uh, explores some very powerful and fundamental ideas in Yiddishkeit and in the Hashkafa of Yiddishkeit. We're going to learn this during this week, and God willing also next week. I saw a question why we're learning Parshas Matas Masa and Parshas Pinchas. And the answer is, because we wouldn't have time, Parshas Matas Masis, I wanted to do it earlier so we could hopefully be finished or close to finished when it comes to uh, Shabbos, Parshas Matas Masis. Okay, so please look inside and let's begin. Again, there are source sheets everybody could follow inside on theyeshiva.net. Above the video, on the right, there's a blue icon, source sheets below the video, on the red, in red, there's a red icon, PDF, on the left. Either of them will give you the source sheet so you can follow inside. This is the text of the Maimer in uh, Lashon Kodesh. As, as was always with the Chabad Rebbes, they would speak on Shabbos or Yom Tif, and there was a group of Chayzrim, of, of memorizers and transcribers who would transcribe the Torah and the teachings after Shabbos. This already began with the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, who had five writers, his brother, the Maharil, and uh, two of his sons, and a chassid, and a grandson. And this continued throughout the generations by the Rebbe, by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe, it's also the same tradition, and the same custom, even if uh, not people of the same caliber in the times of the Balatanya, who would uh, memorize and transcribe the talks, including the Maimarim of Shabbos, that the Rebbe would usually say in the middle of a Shabbos afternoon for bring it. It had many talks, many sikhs, but it was usually also a Maimer, which was taking a theme, an idea in the teachings of Hasidus that originated in the Balatani, the founder of Chabad, and 
develop it and apply it and personalize it and expound on it and explain it. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, this is in Parshas, Masay Perik Lamed Hei, Pasuk Tes. That's the end of the book of Numbers, chapter 35, verse 9 through 11. And Hashem tells Moshe, it's talking about a case where somebody kills another human being inadvertently, what we call Bishayi. There is a case of murder which is premeditated, and it's willing, it's done willingly, volitionally, that's called amazing. But here the Torah addresses that case, but it also addresses the case of a shaykh. It wasn't completely a coerced situation where completely inadvertently, like mamish out of control. But a shaykh is something where the person was negligent. They could have been more careful, but certainly they did not have in mind to uh, kill somebody. And the classic example of that is, a person is on a tree, the Torah says, and he wants to fell the tree or chop wood, and he has this big axe, but there's people around. And, you know, such as he doesn't want to kill anybody, but the axe falls or the wood falls, and somebody dies. So the Torah says, in all these situations where you kill somebody inadvertently, you have to, Designate for yourselves cities. These should be cities of refuge. And that's the place where the killer, the one who struck down another soul and killed it inadvertently, that's where he or she runs into the Ari Miklat, into the cities of refuge. This is the mitzvah, one of the mitzvahs discussed in Parshas Maset. And indeed, this was the custom and tradition in the Jewish world. They had designated in the Holy Land in Eretz Yisrael, on the western side of the Jordan River, six cities of refuge. There were another three on the Transjordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And these cities were called Ari Miklat, cities of escape or cities of protection, of refuge, where people who would murder somebody inadvertently, obviously there was a court case, the, the court had to decide and make sure this was the case. He would remain in those cities of refuge, and there the person was obligated to remain, and they would provide him with all of his needs, and there the person would remain and be protected. They had to remain there until the death of the Kayan Gadol, of the high priest who was serving in the base of Mikdush, in the sanctuary, the temple at the time. The east of Medrash Rabbah bin Kaima, the Medrash Rabbah on this Pasik. Bin Kaima means in its place, meaning sometimes there's a Medrash Rabbah elsewhere. But this is B'mkaymai. On the Pasuk, if you open up a Medrash Rabbah. Medrash Rabbah is, of course, the basic commentary of the changes of the generations of the Tanayim on the Chumash and the Tanakh, all of the Tanakh, where a lot of uh, elucidation is presented, a lot of interpretation, a lot of homiletics, and many of the oral traditions of the sages expounding the various verses in the Torah found in Medrash. So the Medrash Rabbah usually, as I discussed many times when we discuss Medrash, has this uh, angle. It gives you a certain angle on a Pasuk that you wouldn't naturally assume when you're reading the Pasuk. And here is an example, which is classic Medrash, where the Medrash basically introduces a whole different story, which at first glance is a strange comparison, a juxtaposition, and that's the story of Adam and Chava eating from the tree. Let's see the Medrash. Zel Shamar Akasa, the Medrash says, when you read these verses, 
about running away into a city of refuge. When you read these verses, now you can understand another pasuk. This is a pasuk that is familiar to many people. It's Tehillim chapter 25. And according to the Nusach of the Arizal, those who daven according to the Arizal, they say this every single morning, whenever you say Tachnon, after you do the confession, you fall and you sit down and you, uh, what's called Nefilah Sapayim, the face is, is uh, reclined and the person says the capital. So different versions, you say different Nuschayas, uh, different prayers, but according to the Arizal, you say Tehillim chapter 25, God is good and just, and hence, He guides sinners on the road. And this comes right after a previous verse. Remember God, your compassion, remember your kindness, because they are from time immemorial. They've always been there. And then the pasuk continues, says the Medrash, I want you to understand what King David, what David HaMelech was saying. Omar David, David was saying, Master of the world, the Medr says as follows. David tells Hashem, Master of the world, if not for your special kindness that preceded the creation of the first human being, he would have never endured. Why? You told him. You can eat from all the trees in the garden, but from that tree, which is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat. The day you eat from it, you shall die. What happens, indeed? Adam and Chava eat from that tree. You would expect, right after they ate, they should have died. <laughs> they did not. Hashem told them, the day you will eat from it, you will die. But he did not die after he ate from it, nor did his wife die. What happened? Hashem took him out and her out of Gan Eden, of the paradise, the Garden of Eden, where they were situated. But how long did Adam live for? The Torah says Adam lived for 930 years. No, not bad for somebody who got a death uh, sentence. God said, the day you eat from it, you will die. Well, that day continued almost a millennium. He lived for 930 years. Instead, you expelled him from Gan Eden. Why did you expel him from Gan Eden? You threw him out of Gan Eden because he brought death on all of the generations after him. And he himself was obligated to die. But you had compassion. And instead, you expelled him from Gan Eden. In other words, what verdict did you give him? You didn't take his life. You exiled him. He was living in a particular place called the Garden of Eden. And you sent him into exile. That's exactly the fate of whom? Of somebody who kills somebody? inadvertently. So you you, uh, commuted the death sentence of Adam and Chava for eating of the tree of knowledge instead of them dying, which you told them they're going to die. You did something else. What did you do? You sent them into exile, like somebody who kills someone else inadvertently. This is how the Medrash explains the Pesukim. 
Remember your compassion and your kindness, because may Oilam, they come, they, they they were there from the beginning. Your compassion was there before other Marishan even existed. As the Medrash says here, I'm looking at the original Medrash, I mean the Rebbe quotes the whole Medrash. Kimayolam Heima means this is the kindness that you did, that you had in the beginning of the creation of the world before Adam. Because Adam apparently was supposed to die, that's what you told him, but instead he atoned for his mistake. How? how? By going through to exile, everything was changed. And the Rebbe explains the Medrash, the Chet Eitzadas, Hayabemezit. What's the message telling us? The sin of eating of the tree of knowledge was not a mistake. It was not done inadvertently. It was bemazed. It was with volition. It was with pre-merit meditated intention. But the attribute of compassion and kindness of the divine judged Adam as though it was a shaygig. It was an error. This is what David Amalek is saying. Remember your compassion and kindness, because they are me oilam. What does ki me oilam mean? With the beis bria sa oilam. Hein me oilam. Hein ubis manchet oitzadal shayi betchilas abria. Hayaz giliyarachem and vachasadim shalomayla. Because already during the creation of the world, when Adam Arishon transgressed the sin of eating of the tree of knowledge, which of course happens right in the beginning of the story of creation. Adam is created on the first Friday, and following that, he right away eats from the tree. The Gemara says in Masechus Sanhedrin that it happened the very same day he was created. I think with the tenth hour, he was created in the morning, and the tenth hour, around, let's say, three o'clock in the afternoon, approximately, Erev Shabbos, he got hungry and he ate from the Eitzadats. A few hours before Shabbos. Just a few hours before Shabbos. So this happened in the beginning of creation. And then there was a tremendous display of kindness and compassion to commute a sin that was done willingly and treated as though it was done by a mistake. And hence, the verdict was transformed from taking Adam's life as God told him he would. What happens? He sends him into exile. He says, time to leave Ganadin, go live elsewhere, which is the law of Torah of the Arimikla, the city of refuge. This is basically what the Medrash says. Now you see the connection of the Pesukim. Your kindness comes from the beginning of creation. And then the next Pasuk, two Pesukim later, what does he say? He guides the sinners on the road. Which road? He says you can go to the city of refuge and be protected. Chatoyim is the person who killed somebody by mistake. So Yoyre, God gives him a path and says, here, go from your city to the city of refuge and you will be protected. Just as he did May Oilam in the beginning of creation with Adam and Chava, he sent them on the road out of Ganadin, on the road towards a place that was outside of paradise and there, their sin was taken care of. That's basically the Medrash Rabbah's interpretation on the verses that deal with running, running into the city of refuge. Umizem Muvan. From this we understand something. Shechet Eitzadas Ubedugmas Heirig Nefesh. 
What's the connection between these two stories? Why is the Medrash talking about eating from the tree of knowledge when we're talking about killing somebody by mistake? So he says, we see from here that the sin of the tree of knowledge had an element of murder to it. They ate a fruit. Where's the murder? It had an element of murder to it. However, there was a special display of compassion that caused this act of murder to be judged not as a volitional act, but as an inadvertent act, as a shoigig. But the whole premise needs to, needs, needs explanation. What is the connection between eating of the tree of knowledge and Khalila taking somebody's life and saying that it should have been, Adam should have died because it's like he murdered somebody and that's why Hashem told him you're going to die. But then Hashem commuted the sentence to expulsion, like somebody who killed somebody by mistake. But what do we see from this whole Medrash? That there's a premise here, there's an underlying idea that Chet Eitzadas is compared, somehow reflects or initiated or is connected on some level with Hayrig Nefesh, with taking somebody's soul, God forbid, with taking somebody's life. What is the basis of all of this? Now, what do you see from this Medrash, besides what the Rebbe is saying? You see from this Medrash a certain approach, which you see in Medrashim constantly. And that is, and this is an important thing to emphasize, and I hope you can appre- uh, appreciate and understand what I'm going to say now, and really internalize it so that you should be able to develop perspective, because perspective is extremely important. What did the Medrash do here? I'm reading Parshish Masay and I'm reading about a mitzvah. And the mitzvah is that if somebody killed somebody by mistake, he runs away to a city of refuge. Suddenly the Medrash is giving an interpretation of two verses in Tehillim chapter 25. But it's not just an interpretation in Tehillim. The Medrash is making this mystical connection or Midrashic connection between what happened in the beginning of creation and the discussion at the end of the book of Numbers. The end of the book of Numbers is being said when the Jewish people are about to go into the Holy Land, 40 years after they left Egypt, which means the year 2,488 since creation, 2488. That's two and a half thousand, almost two and a half thousand years after the story of the Tree of Knowledge. But the Medrash is now putting together Parshas Bereshus and Parshas Maseh. What is the underlying paradigm of this type of connection, which is frequent in Medrash, it's frequent in Gemara, whenever the Gemara explores Psukim, what we call Agadah, and it's frequent in all of the Midrashic texts of Judaism from the beginning of when these texts were written all the way down to this very day. The premise here is that when there's a mitzvah, like running away to the city of refuge, it's not just an isolated mitzvah. It's somehow connected to the cosmic to the cosmic order. It's connected to the fabric of creation. Or, I'm going to put it, in these words, somebody sends out an essay on Svasemis. Uh, he comes to our shir of a Muncie, Mr. Rottenberg, Mark Rottenberg, Mark Rottenberg. So he writes this. I'm just quoting it because it's a very powerful way of explaining it. The basis for all life on earth is water. We all know that. The molecular formula for water is H2O. Because of the fixed configuration of the electrons, 
in the outermost shell of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen must combine with two atoms of hydrogen to form each molecule of water. So that's why the f- chemistry, the formula of water in chemistry, it's H2O, H2O, because every single molecule of water contains, is a combination of two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. Can I make a water molecule consisting of H4O? No, I can't. Water is always made up of H2O, because that is how the universe was built. It is engraved into the creation. It's what we call, what the Svasemus calls, a chayk. It's It's part of the fabric of creation. This is what makes up water. And the same is true with every single existence. When we understand Torah mitzvahs, we often look at it as just a book of laws. And these laws were given by the creator of the world to the Jewish people or to the world to follow. What the Medrash is teaching you that way is not that way. It's part of the fabric of creation. It's engraved into the very DNA of existence, of creation. It's not just a law that was given to people to practice. No, it's inherent to the structure of creation. Just like physical phenomena that science discovers or or, or physics discovers or chemistry discovers. This is the structure of reality. You can like it, you can dislike it, you can embrace it enthusiastically, you can be upset by it. In the case of water molecules, I don't think anybody is upset by it. It gives us life. Without water, there could be absolutely no life on any level. Most of our body is made up of water, and we uh, we grow in our mother's womb in water, and mamish, I think 90% of the red blood cell is water, and 70% of the body, and never mind our planet. I mean, water supports life on every single level. Nobody's upset about it, but this is this is called the laws of nature, and that's why we study them. There are also the, the spiritual fabric of creation, and that's Torah mitzvahs are inherent to the structure of creation. They're not just laws, they really tell the story of life. That's why the Medrash says, it's not just you're running away into a city. No, this is connected to something that happened in the beginning of creation, and that's why it's all connected. So the running into a city of refuge is a reflection of a dynamic that occurs right in the beginning of creation of Adam Arishan leaving Ganeidin because of the sin of the tree of knowledge. That's a very important premise that we also learn from this Madrash. But we're now back to our question. What is the connection between eating from the tree of knowledge and murder? Next paragraph. To understand the connection. The connection. Between Chet Eitzadah, the sin of eating of the tree of knowledge, and taking somebody's soul to the point that the Medrash compares the two, which at the surface is difficult to understand, he may isa besifri kabol. Uhuva b'chsidis ala pasuk, shayifich dam ha'adam ba'adam dama yishafich. This is a pasuk that said in Parshish Noyach, I'm just opening the Chumash. As you see in the footnotes, footnote number 8, this is Parshish Noyach, Perik Tes, Pasig Vav, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. After the flood, God blesses Noyach and his children, and he tells them to multiply and fill the world. And then he gives the instructions about preserving human dignity, every soul. And the expression is, Shoy Fichdam Ha'adam, 
ba'adam dama yishafech ki b'tzalem alehim asa asa adam. That's an incredible passage, which literally means shafech dama adam, somebody who spills the blood of a human being. Through a human being, his blood shall be spilled. This is one of those psukim where there's like a, I forgot the word for it, but there's like the special rhyme where shayfech dama adam, but adam tami yishafech. It goes in one order, and then that order gets reversed in an identical fashion in the opposite direction. You see, shayfech dam adam. listen to these words. Somebody who pours the blood of man, of a human being, so that the response is, Ba'adam Dama Yishafech, exactly the same words in the opposite order. Meaning the energy I give out, I exude, the action that I create becomes a reaction in the reverse. Shayfech Dam Ha'adam, Shayfech Dam Ha'adam, Ba'adam Dama Yishafech, through a person, his blood will be spilled. Why? Kibetzelem Aleikim Asas Adam. Because in the image of God, he created human beings. And this is, of course, in the generation of Noyach. This is generations before Avram Avinu, generations before Moshe Rabbeinu. This is close to the beginning of creation. I mean, the beginning is 1,500 years, 1,600 years after creation. But here we see one of the great revolutions of the Hebrew Bible of the Tanakh, how to treat human life. Human life, every single human life, is sacred. And it contains non-negotiable dignity and value. And this is true about every single human being upon whom the Pasuk says, which Adam? Every human person. That's why Rabbi Akiva says in Pirkei Yavis, in the ethics of our fathers, the famous expression, every human being is cherished and sacred, something special and unique, because every person, female and male, senior citizen and child, people of every color and every race and every ethnic group and every background were carved, so to speak, in the divine image. And therefore, shedding their blood is something that is is considered horrific and considered the epitome of evil in the imagination and in the morality of the Tanakh, of the Chumash, of the Torah. And when somebody does do that, he does spill, shayfich, he murders, he kills, he sp- and therefore spills the blood of another person, ba'adam dama yishafich. This is not just a small act or insignificant act, no. It's like you murdered a piece of God. It's like you murdered God's image in this world. You murdered, you took the life of God's manifestation in this world. By the way, these are the things that everyone has to know. This is what our youth needs to be educated with. I'm talking about the United States of America and the whole world. These types of psukim that embed in human beings from their youth an approach to life, how you look at people, how you deal with people, how you understand what it means to take a life of any human being. (laughs) Just mentioning this as, as a side note, because imagine if every public school in the United States of America would teach this value, would teach these words, would take a moment of silence to reflect on such concepts, society would benefit tremendously. We wouldn't have to have metal detectors in our public schools. What is what Rashi explains this on a legal level. It's a law. If somebody spills the blood of man, his blood should be spilled through man, which means he should get the death penalty. Why? Because 
He didn't kill an animal or a bird, which also you're not allowed to do if it's just in vain for entertainment. But here he killed somebody who's the image of God, so it's like you, so to speak, you put a bullet into God's image. Okay, the next Pesach says, you should multiply yourself. Now, whenever you have such a Pesach, any Pesach, it right away triggers deep imagination and thought. What does it mean? You pour the blood of man, through man your blood gets poured. On a legal level it means, this is the genesis of the death penalty. Somebody who takes somebody else's life, under certain circumstances, their life may be taken. In Jewish law that was not an easy uh, an easy verdict to come by. As the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin, that a, that a Jewish court that killed once in 70 years is called Chavlan, and they're called a gang of... Uh, of terrorists, of, uh, of, uh, of killers. So this is, uh, the Mishnah says that one of the great Talmudic sages said that if I would have been in the Jewish court, no person would have ever gotten the death penalty. Shemangamliel was upset at him. He said, okay, you would allow murder to happen in your society. This was a very interesting debate. But the point is, this is the concept legally. But there's also, as always, the spiritual concept in this possible. So, it says in Kabbalah, and it's brought in, in the teachings of Hasidism, Wow. is explained in Kabbalistic writings to represent something that is very profound. I'm going to translate, and then we'll explain as we go on, because this concept will become clearer as we move on. When a person, when a Jew, is over Aveda, which means transgresses the will of the Divine Creator, he is pouring out Shoifech, shvichas dama means pouring blood. Letting the blood of a person come out of him, which is like when we, God forbid, somebody stabs a person and kills them. That's shvichas dama. It's called pouring their blood because their blood spills out. When somebody violates the will of the Creator, it says in Kabbalah, this person is, so to speak, pouring out the blood of the Adam of Kedusha, the human of holiness, and that blood is exiting that Adam and going into Adam the Lu'umaza, into the Adam which is represented by the person of negativity, of toxicity, which is the counterbalance of holiness in the world. Adam Bliyah, the Adam which is represented by evil or, or morality. The word Avera indicates that. What does the word Avera mean? We know the word mitzvah means a commandment. A mitzvah also means a link, a connection. In Hebrew, mitzvah means a connection. What does the word Avera mean? It's an interesting word. You ever thought about it? The word Avera we have in the laws of Shabbos. Maivir mirishus lirishus. Transporting something from one domain into another domain. Bringing it out from one domain and placing it in a new domain. That is called ha'avara. Passing something from one type of location to a new type of location. That is called ma'ivir or ha'avara. What happens by avera? By avera, he says, you do that. When I do, when a person commits a transgression, what am I doing? I am transporting 
energy from the world of holiness into the domain of unholiness. That's called Avera. I passed it on. I took Chios. I took energy that belonged in one domain and I brought it into a new domain. That's a pretty creative Malach. In fact, it's one of the 39 labors prohibited on Shabbos. But here, it's on a cosmic level. I'm not just taking a key or a book or a bottle of wine and transporting it from my house into the street or to another house. But here there's the concept of Aveira is a cosmic concept of taking energy of holiness and bringing it into the domain of unholiness. What does this mean, literally? What does it mean? On a very basic level, what the Kabbalah is teaching here is the significance and the cosmic and very deep effect of why an Aveira is forbidden, why certain things God says you should not do. It's not just, it's not a nice thing to do. That's also true. But it's that a, there's something really happens. There's a real impact in the world and a real impact in your soul and in your body and in your home and in your life. And what is that impact? I poured out, I spilled the blood of man. And this is not just murder, murder for sure, but it's true really with every sin. And what does it mean I spilled the blood of man? This blood belonged in this person. This person is a living organism, and part of life is the circulatory system, which allows the blood to constantly flow through the organism. And as the Pasuk says, Hadamu HaNefesh, the blood is the seat of the soul. That's what's responsible for the vitality, the animation, the life force, the oxygen that every single cell in our body receives constantly through the blood circulating throughout our organism non-stop throughout the day and throughout the night from the moment a person is born throughout their journey in life. That is where the dam is. Shoifich dam means I let that blood spill out. It could be willingly, it could be unwillingly, but that's what happens. Let's take the case of a person who's an addict, for example. Just giving that as a simple example to understand. What happens? What happens is a person takes his energy his lifestyle, things that he could have done with his life, and instead that energy is being invested and being given, and their soul is sold to the addiction. And now the addiction owns me, I don't own myself. So basically my energy, my productivity, my consciousness, my mind, instead of it being used to promote my life and to make my life better, I basically take that very energy And I give it up. I give it up like to the devil. I give it up to some form of addiction which now owns it. That's a metaphor for this. When I do an Aveir, when I violate the divine will, I'm taking the Chiyos, the blood, the life of Adam the Kedusha, and taking out that energy and using that energy to feed a different Adam. What does it mean, a different Adam? A different Adam is the Adam of negativity, the persona of negativity. Or as we say, what is an Aveira? I take energy that belongs to the domain of God, and I take that energy, and where does it go to? I transport that Chiyos, that energy, that life, into a domain of unholiness. As will still be explained. This is the meaning of the Pasuk in Parshas Emmer. Literally, it means somebody who curses the name of God. But what does the word Noikiv really mean? Noikiv comes from the word Nekev. 
means you puncture the name of God. And the result is death. Puncture the name of God, yes. The shame havaya koi ala oiris hameirim bekelum. Shame havaya, the name of Yutke Vofke, represents the divine energy that is manifested in vessels. It's basically the structure of divine energy manifested and vibrating throughout all of the worlds, including our world. That's called Shem Havai. The name of Hashem is the divine energy, but it's structured in vessels. V'noikiv ulashen nekev. Noikiv, we translate as cursing. Really, it means you rupture, you create a, perf- you perforate, you make a hole. Nekev is a hole. Shaydei ha'averu oisen nekev bekeli u'bemelanim shechachius l'makam aklipis. What happens when you rupture the vessel? The liquids, the beverages in it leak out. And where do they end up in? They end up somewhere else, whether it's on the table or on the floor. What happens when there's a hole in the cup? There's a neck of a hole in the cup. The keli can't contain any more the energy. So noikiv shem incredible interpretation. Noikiv shem means you rupture the name of God. What's the name of Hashem? A name is always that which allows you to relate to others. It allows others to relate to you. People call you by your name. They relate to you by your name. They don't have access to your inner essence, but I can call you by your name. Name means your name, your reputation. So the name of Hashem is the way the divine energy is structured in vessels in which the energy vibrates through the world. When I do a sin, I rupture that, keli. I literally perforate it, I make a hole. And the energy that belongs to the domain of God, to the light of the vessel, where it's wholesome and contained, now suddenly that energy was spilled because the vessel was ruptured, and therefore, there is a hole, v'noikiv shem Hashem. And what's the result of that? The result of that is mois yumos, death. We're going to see what that means. It's not just a, a sin and a punishment. You do this, you're going to die. No, it's actually a natural result. The punishments in Torah are basically manifestations of the results of the person's actions. So what happens here is, there is a certain structure, like a body, in which the blood is flowing. V'noikif, when I rupture that, when I stab, I take a stab at it, and now suddenly the blood leaves the body, the person can't live anymore. The blood that belonged in that place went elsewhere. Spiritually, that's the concept of shoifich dam ha'adam. Ba'adam dama yishofich. There's a noikif shem Hashem. I could rupture the name of God and literally make a hole in it and take the energy. That energy is now spilled and it goes into a whole other place. What place does it go into? What does it feed? It feeds the realm of klipa. Klipa means shells, husks. The reality of life in which God is completely concealed and covered over by a husk, by a shell, which means practically that instead of the world operating in a unified, harmonious, divine way, I take that very energy that really belongs to the divine, and everything belongs to the divine, because everything is oneness. And through the sin, I take that energy inside of me, and inside of the world, and it's now being utilized and manipulated for purposes that are contrary to its very origin and its very essence. Kain 
וזהו הקשר בחטא צדס לעניין שביחס דומה. It's true with every sin, but it's also true with eating from the tree of knowledge, which is considered the beginning of all the sins, and that's why the punishment for death, the punishment for eating of the tree of knowledge, was not just for Adam and Chava, it was for all the generations. Why? Because what happened then is really the source of what's happening constantly. Adam and Chava didn't just eat from a tree one point at one time in history. It created a shift for all generations. We are all part of that story. Every sin that we do is a continuation of what Adam and Chava did, as we will see why. And therefore, what Adam and Chava did affects all the generations, even though I'm not guilty for what he did. But the issue really is that they set the world into a particular, they set the world into motion in a particular way. There was a shift of consciousness and a shift of action. So that sin of Adam and Chava is really the source, it's the root of every distortion in human nature and in human action throughout all of history. And therefore the results of Adam and Chava, of their sin, affects every single generation because it redefines how we live. So through that sin, what happens? The life of holiness goes to a place of clip, it goes to unholiness. And that's why it's called Shvich It's pouring blood. Where is their murder? They ate a fruit. They didn't kill anybody. But that's the cause and the source of all sins, including the sin of murder, which happens in the next scene. Cain would kill Hevel. That's the second sin. It's not a coincidence that murder is the second sin after eating of the tree. What's the connection? So he says, on a deeper spiritual level, when they eat from that Eitz Adas, there is a Shvichas Domen. Not in a physical sense. They didn't pour any, they didn't spill anybody's blood. But in a spiritual sense, when they ate from that tree, what happens? The Chiyos of Kedusha, there was a rupture in the name of Hashem. Noik of Shem Hashem. Shoifich dam ha'odom, b'odom dama yishafich. Averez, taking the life force of holiness and transporting it into a place of unholiness. Now, that very life force, that very energy is not in a place of Kedusha, it's in a place of unkedusha, of, of lack of Kedusha, the opposite of holiness. A person's life is really holy. Everything about a person's life is holy. A person's existence is their relationship with God because God is the DNA of existence. So just like a person's blood belongs in the body, the life force of the world belongs in holiness. That's what it really is. It's part of holiness. An Avera is really changing that. It's transforming that chemistry. It's really taking energy that is all holy, it's all divine, and it's being used for a reality, for a perception, for thoughts, words, action, that are antithetical to the divine system of creation. That is called Shvichis Domen, because everything we do has energy, everything. Every action, every word, every thought, every attitude, every perspective, every feeling. Everywhere I go and anything I do has energy. It has blood in it. Without the flow of the blood, nothing can happen. So therefore, if it's something that's a mitzvah or something that's connected to a mitzvah, it's in the realm of holiness. When I do an Aveir, what am I doing? I'm using the energy. I'm using the blood. I'm using the blood of the divine. This is the divine blood. It's the divine energy inside of me and inside everything in the world. But what am I using it for? I'm feeding and I'm bringing it and it's now fueling a whole different domain and that is a life, a reality, a perception, a delusion 
of that which is antithetical to the divine will and the divine plan. That is called shvichis domem. It's literally letting the blood, I mean, the visual, the visualization of this is pretty dramatic. It's literally creating that rupture in holiness and allowing that blood to flow out, to come out, to gush forth. And now that blood is being wasted, being used, being squandered on things, realities, ideas, actions, words that are the antithesis of holiness. But this still requires a lot of understanding. Even the Klippos were created by God. I don't understand. You're talking about this whole unholiness thing. Who created them? God. So they have chayas from God too. So what happens through sin? You're telling me that through sin, you're taking the blood, the chayas, the life of Kedusha, and you're giving life to Klippa. They have life. God created them. They're around. <laughs> That's why you can do it. There's something called klipa. There's something called husks and shells that eclipse godliness. So what happens through sin? They already have their life force. <laughs> the explanation is that klipa is in yanum There's klipa the way it was created. What does the word klipa mean? It's like a shell of a fruit. You peel a banana in order to eat a banana. You peel an orange to eat an orange. And you crack the nut to take the nut out of the husk of the nut. Some fruits don't need a clipper. They don't have a shell to protect them. But there's a clipper. Clipper means a shell, a container, a husk. Inside of it lay a wonderful, nutritious, beautiful, delicious fruit. You peel the clipper, the shell, and you take out the fruit. Klippa was created by God. But how was it created? What's the concept? It's like the husk that protects the fruit. It's not an enemy of the fruit. The, when you take a banana, you want to eat a banana or an orange, you know, this, this ridiculous klippa, the enemy of the orange is obstructing my path to my orange. It's not obstructing your path. It's actually protecting the orange. It's allowing the orange to remain what it's supposed to be, because as it grows on your orange tree, all of the elements of nature can easily distort and destroy the orange, and it's these clippers, these husks, that protect the fruit. It's true, you don't eat the banana peel, you have to peel it in order to access the fruit. Don't confuse the husk with the fruit. But the purpose of the husk is to protect the fruit. Whoa. We talk about clipper, clipper, clipper. He says clipper, the way it was created, not only is it not. A, a, a foe of holiness, not only is it not a force that opposes holiness or even conceals it or eclipses it, not only not that, on the contrary, it's the protector of holiness. Just like the word clip, just like the fruit, the peel of the orange, the peel of the banana, or again, any other husk, any other fruit that has its, its, its peel, 
whether it's the kiwi, whether it's the watermelon, whether it's the cantaloupe, whatever it is, every fruit that has its peel, the peel is there not to oppose the fruit, to block the fruit, to cover the fruit, to even eclipse it. No. What is it there for? It's there to protect the fruit. To allow the fruit to be able to be what it is, because when the fruit is growing on the tree, it is very vulnerable. And in order for it to be able to grow and ripen and become edible for human or animal consumption, it must have Mother Nature, Divine Providence. This is really the fascinating world of botany to study and see how every single fruit and vegetable and legume and grain, all types of foods that grow, every single one has that unique chemistry that allows it to survive and produce and become that unique uh, component that creates our nutrition and has all the properties that we need in order to live. But somehow that seed, when it's planted, has that uh, extraordinary, brilliant wisdom of design to know exactly what the DNA of this fruit should inscribe in its manual production of how to produce me in a way that I will be able to survive the elements and be able to fulfill my purpose to become ripe and to be worthy of consumption. And therefore, every single tree in the world has a different mechanism, a different blueprint, a different manual, how everything gets produced perfectly to be able to fulfill its purpose. And part of it is, for many fruits, it must have a clipper. If it doesn't have a clipper, if it doesn't have a shell, it's true with all the grain. If you only have the kernel without the chaff, without the husk, it would never survive. Not from the rain and not from the scorching sun. And without rain and without sun, you have no grain and you have no fruits and you have no vegetables. So you have to have these elements. But the heat and the cold and the moisture would never allow it to survive. It would completely destroy it. And therefore you have to have a clipper that protects it. So what's clipper? We always use the word clipper as this horrible thing. The Rebbe says, from the perspective of creation, that's not the case. Not only is it not a blockage, not only is it not a conceal, on the contrary, it's an assistant. He said, let's take this immediately and apply it to life. Right away, we apply this to the avoid of a person. Listen to this. You saw I titled the title of today's class, Arrogance is Good for You. What did I mean? Arrogance is bad for you. The beginning of a person's avoid, you have to have a little yeshes. You know what yeshes means? Yeshes means a sense of being, a sense of existence, or maybe you want to call it in English a healthy ego. The Gemara calls it in sight of The Gemara says that a Talmud Chacham needs to have an eighth of an eighth of hubris, of, 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 of Yeshus, of Gaiva. An eighth of an eighth. Not a lot, but an eighth of an eighth. That's a 64th. As the Marsha says there, it's one of 64. You divide something into 64 parts, one of that. <laughs> That's how much hubris you can have. If you have already a 63rd, then it's Samach Gimel, is gas. That's arrogance. 
But 64th is fine. An eighth of an eighth. In other words, you have to have a little bit of a, of, of a sense of ego. What does this mean? Listen to this. But Pashtasu, on a literal level, it means we're now going to read a sentence, a paragraph that is, is, is crucial. It's essential. I can't, I can't exaggerate how essential this is to life. When a person comes to serve Hashem, the Yetzirah tells him the negative inclination, the voice inside of me that always makes sure to undermine my serenity and my clarity and my focus comes and says, think to yourself, who am I? And what am I? That I should have the audacity to serve the Rebbeinu Shalom. This is one of the very effective attacks and voices of the negative inclination. Sha'oi tells him, as the handle Hashem is The Yetzirah, the negative inclination, doesn't always come into you and just say, oh, go, 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 go to addiction, go do the wrong thing. No, sometimes he speaks lofty words and communicates very noble ideas. The Yetzirah tells you, you're dealing here with Avodah Hashem is with serving God, you're dealing here with the ultimate truth. Melech Malchi Amlochim Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the King of Kings, God. And you know who you are. In Echtu Chalav, this Hashem is Baruch. How in the world do you even think you have the capacity to serve God? What a joke! What a contrast! You are lowly. You are a brute. You are a narcissist. You're a loser. You're a traumatized, helpless victim. You have made so many mistakes in the past. You are, l'chol a real addict. You're dysfunctional. You're broken. I'm using a couple of adjectives, but the Yetzirah is usually smarter, so he, he uses the right words to be able to get you. You know what you did yesterday. You know what you're going to do tomorrow. You know what your interests are. You know who you are. How dare you? What, what are you? you? You have to be honest with yourself. You are going to build a relationship with God you're going to serve Hashem, the Yetzirah says. He puts in those four words, Miami Umani. Who am I? And what am I? Who am I? What am I? What are you? This arrogant, pompous, self-centered, narcissistic, egomaniac who thinks that the world revolves around him and now I'm going to serve God? And the Rebbe explains more of what the Yetzirah tells you. And here comes very, this is a very sophisticated Yetzirah. He even knows a little chassidus too. Because the Yetzirah says, what does it really mean to serve God? Avodah Hashem doesn't just mean, what does Avodah Hashem mean? How do you serve God? A servant serves the master and he helps the master, right? When you have somebody helping you in your job or in your home, that person who's serving you, who's working with you, is building your business, cleaning your home, taking care of different responsibilities. They're actually contributing to you. What's Avaydis Hashem? We're serving God. Do you ever think about this? This is a question the Balatanya says. What do you mean you're serving God? What, you're enhancing his life? You're cooking food for him? You're cleaning his house? You're running his business for him? You're his chief financial officer? What, what, what is this Avaydis Hashem? 
An Evid, Avoida means you help the person you're working for. I don't hire somebody if that person is not helping you. I mean, certain organizations do that. You hire people just to hire them and then they stay on payroll. Certain companies do that as well. But a functional service, functional servant means you're doing something for me. So he says, yes, that's Avoida Sashem. Through our Avoida, we increase, so to speak, divine energy. The Medrash says on the Pasuk, After the story of the spies, let the power of God be strengthened. So the Medrash Rabbah in Eicha, Parsha Aleph says that through the Avoida of the Jews, they add energy, they, they, they increase, so to speak, divine energy. The opposite also. Through the opposite of avoid, when I quit my avoid, you know what happens? I weaken the divine energy. The Medrash says this in Medrash Rabba Echa on the Pasuk and Parashasazinu. Tzur Yiladcha Teshi. Tzur Yiladcha means the rock from which you were born. Teshi became weak through you. Matishin When a Jew doesn't serve God, when a Jew detaches himself from Avaida Sashem, what happens? You actually weaken the rock from which you were conceived. Tzur is like the progenitor, the rock, the the solid, powerful source from which we come. Teshi. Teshi means you make it weak. Matishin Kayakshomail. When the Jews don't do the will of Hashem, they weaken the divine energy. So the Yitzhahara tells the person, So the Yitzhahara says, Now tell me, where in the world do you have the chutzpah to think that you could serve God? What does serving God mean? Not only I do things that it says in the book I should do. It means I have an impact. It means I change the world. It means I change history. It means I affect Kivayachal the Rebbeinu Shalom himself. That's what Chazal are teaching us. You really have a cataclysmic power. It's a hundred things. Really? Why don't you look in the mirror and see what a loser you are? You're going to serve Hashem? You think that you're davening? You're learning? You're mitzvahs? The way you live, the way you interact with people, what you do in the world can transform and impact the world in its deepest place where you affect Hashem and the energy of Hashem and the opposite. When you don't serve God, it weakens the process. Come on! How arrogant can you be? Especially knowing who you are. Especially knowing what people have told you about yourself. Especially you know who you are. You know your situation. And therefore, how can you even have such an absurd thought? And that's why in the beginning of Avedis Hashem, you have to have a little yeshes. A little healthy hubris, healthy arrogance, healthy egotism. I won't call it arrogance, but it's a sense of, not arrogance, but self-value, self-dignity. So you won't be affected by the Yetzirah, and you'll engage in the service of Hashem, and you'll appreciate how important, how valuable, how amazing, how beautiful.
V'nimtza, let's just finish this paragraph and then we'll take a break. V'nimtza, she'yeshezu lo'ezu b'vacheni minagedes lo'vayda savayel adrabim sayeres alavay. This yeshez, this sense of self-assertion, not only does it not oppose serving Hashem, on the contrary, it helps, it assists. Without it, you could be completely lost. You remember what we spoke about the fruit and the clipper? Now we'll understand the role of Clipper, the way it was designed in the system of creation. When you're looking at that fruit and that shell, that shell is not here to block the fruit and eclipse the fruit and obstruct the path to the fruit. No! It's here that, that the fruit should be able to develop and mature and become ripe and become nutritious and become that fruit that you could consume. It's a clip, it's a shell, it has to be discarded. That's at a later stage. We'll soon see about that. But initially, this clip is the best thing that ever happened to the fruit. So when we say the word clip on a cosmic spiritual level... Don't think that Klippa is the opposition to holiness, to godliness. No! Don't even think it blocks it and conceals it. No! It's not an enemy and it's not a blockage. What is it? It's a shimer. It's a protector. It allows the fruit to mature. What is this? This an avoidance Hashem. What is Klippa? What do we say? What is Klippa? Klippa always means the husk that conceals the fruit. But that husk that conceals the fruit is really not trying to conceal the fruit. It's trying to help the fruit develop. Now let's talk about this in a person's life. What do we generally define as klippa? Klippa means any force in reality that conceals the oneness of God. In other words, any reality that puts me and tells me that I'm separated from Hashem. I'm not one with Hashem. In other words, it covers up the truth that we are all divine energy, we are all God's light in this world. That's what Kedusha is. Kedusha means the approach, the perspective, that there is oneness. What's Klippa? Klippa is the approach that there is separateness. In other words, the divine reality is concealed. So I can feel separate, I can feel detached, dejected, depressed, and severed from my own source. It's like taking the fish out of water. But when you take the fish out of water, it doesn't have its oxygen, it can't live anymore. Klippa is a whole life that God created. So the Rebbe says here, Klippa initially is not an enemy to Kedusha, on the contrary. It's a protector. How do we understand this? So he gave this classic example in life. What do, what, what do we hold about, what do we think of pompousness? Or of egotism? Or of self aggrandizement These are things that are antithetical to holiness. You're an extension of God. We don't we don't try to glorify the self. And yet, he says, if a person doesn't have that inner sense of self-dignity, that inner sense that you matter, that you are powerful, then what? You will not serve God. Your fruit will never develop. The fruit, in fact, will become fodder that will either decompose or will, be, uh, or will become rotten and will never be able to achieve its purpose. When the human being cannot say to themselves that they matter, when you do not realize your value, your dignity, your impact, you can't begin to serve Hashem. So the beginning of the service of Hashem must require, as he puts it in this mind, it requires a little bit of yeshes. What is yeshes here? Yeshes we call klippa. 
But this type of klipa is not something that eclipses the fruit. It's here to protect the fruit. Why? Because it allows you to begin your process of growing. Understanding that your life matters. Understanding that you are valuable. Understanding that you stand at the vortex of creation. That your actions, your words, your thoughts, your attitudes, your perspectives, your lifestyle has a cataclysmic impact. Understanding that you're capable of serving God of actually contributing to the world, that you matter, that you are needed, that you are an indispensable note in the cosmic divine symphony, and what you do or do not do has a tremendous, tremendous influence and impact, not only on yourself and the people around you, but on the world, on history, on the Creator. Tzur yilotcha teshi or va'ata yigdal makayachadna. Now you might say, why is that klippe? That's kedusha. Understanding your value, understanding your dignity. We're going to get there. We'll see the next stage when you have to peel the fruit. But this type of clip, this understanding of yourself as valuable, and yes, you have to look at it as you. You are valuable. That is the power that God gave you. But this is not a bad yeshes. This is not a bad ego. This is not a pompousness that's going to throw you, cast you into the abyss. This is a healthy ego, a sense of self-esteem, of appreciating your inner physical and spiritual and cosmic dignity, which God has invested in you to the point that you could contribute something. Here we have a classic example that this quality of self-importance and self-value, the way it's designed by God, not only is it not, not an opposition to holiness, on the contrary, it is the great protector of holiness. When people cannot understand their value and they think that they're a shmata and they're a loser, there's no way you can even begin to serve God because the Yetzirah wants you to believe that you are worthless and meaningless and he loves saying that God is infinite and you're a piece of filth and garbage and then of course what I do absolutely doesn't matter. Who cares? Let's take some questions. Okay. I would think that Adam eating from the tree didn't come willingly because it was the snake who made them eat. That's true. The snake convinced Chava to eat. But ultimately, Chava had to make a decision and Adam had to make a decision. Doing something willingly doesn't mean there's nobody who influences me. There may be somebody who influences me, but yet I'm the one who had to choose to do it. That's why we call it a maze. Very good question. Next question. We are talking about the sin of killing somebody. What about all other sins, like violating Shabbos or adultery? Is murder the most stringent? Is the most is murder the most stringent of all of them? Yeah, that's the point. The point is that any avera is a form of murder, not physically. God forbid. But every Aveda has this element of murder. What is murder? Murder is taking a life and causing the blood to leave the body. Shviches Damim. It's called Shviches Damim. Why is murder called Shviches Damim? Shviches Damim means literally pouring out the blood. A person's life is a story of the divine. It's God's manifestation in this world. Taking that life is killing that manifestation of God. That manifestation of Hashem is not here anymore. 
you destroy a Tzalem Aleikim, an imprint of God. That chios of God in the world is now gone as a result of this act of Shvitas Dhamma. In many ways, every Aveira does that. Why? It's Shvichas Dhamma. There is the chios, there is the energy of the world that is being used for this sin. Let's say I say something that I shouldn't say, or I do something I shouldn't do, or my thoughts go to places where I shouldn't go. That's taking the energy that belongs to Hashem and literally rupturing it and taking that energy and using it and manipulating it and causing it to be spilled into a domain which is the antithesis of the divine, the antithesis of holiness, the antithesis of morality. So I'm taking divine life, I'm taking divine energy, I'm taking divine energy, and what am I doing with it? The energy of my soul, the energy of my brain, the energy of my consciousness, the energy of my blood. I'm taking that energy, it's divine energy, or I'm taking something in the world. It's also divine energy. And I'm literally rupturing it, and that energy, which is really divine, is now spilled. And where does it go to? It's now feeding. It's now being used to create a reality called an Avera. That's why the word Avera captures this truth so profoundly. You're Maivimirishus Lirishus. Now, when you think about this, this is telling you something very deep. It's a sin is not just you're doing the wrong thing. It's much deeper, like everything. That's what Pnimi Satir is. Back to what I spoke before about H20, H2O. It's not just you're doing something against the book. You're doing something that is in contrast to the very fabric of creation. The energy that I'm using for an Aver, whether I'm eating something I shouldn't be eating, whether I say something I shouldn't be saying, whether I engage in thoughts I shouldn't be engaged in, whether I engage in an action, right, that I should not be engaging, whatever it is, you said adultery, it could be theft, it could be lying, it could be gossip, it could be slander, it could be an act on Shabbos that I shouldn't do. What am I doing? I'm taking the energy of myself, which is really divine, or the energy of something in the world. Yeah, I tear off a fruit on Shabbos. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to harvest on Shabbos. That fruit has energy. That tree has energy. That twig, that branch has energy. It's divine energy. And what did I do now? I took the chios of my hand, my arm, and the energy of that tree. And what did I do now? I'm using this energy which is divine, to feed and nurture a reality that is unholy, that is antithetical to the divine system of creation. That is shvichas That is pouring of the blood. So the question of the Mimer was, but Klippa has its own energy. You don't have to feed it. So he started this whole explanation that Klippa on its own is not unholy. It's a shell that protects the fruit. Next question. The Rambam says in Hilchis Deis, that there are views and perspectives, there are ethical standards that you should not only follow in the middle road, but you should go from one ex- to another to one extreme. For example, arrogance. Don't only be humble, be exceedingly humble, like Moshe Rabbeinu. And as the Chazal say, somebody who's arrogant denies God. And that's what the Gemara says, when you have arrogance, even a little bit of arrogance, you deserve to be excommunicated. Now, in Gemara Mesechta Saita Dav Hey, it says, Amr Ibnachim by Yitzchak, Loimi Nova Loimi You should not have even a little bit of arrogance. How does this fit with the halacha? Well, the same Gemara in Saita Dav Hey 
also brings the idea of Talmud Chacham, Tzarech Shiyehei Shminis Shebeshminis, that the Talmud Chacham has to have a little bit. So the question is, do you look at these opinions as a complete argument or not as an argument? Even if you say it's an argument, every view in halacha, even when there's another Dalo view, has to be understood. So you have to understand what is the opinion. But the truth is, it's explained in some places that some say it's not even an argument. And that's going to be the discussion we're going to learn about, that there's a difference in the beginning of Avaida or later in Avaida. Very good comment. We'll still get back to this. The Baal Shem Tov says, this is in Tzavos HaRivosh and in Ahogos Yisharis. Ulepa'amim tzarech lahariz gavaz b'fnei b'nei adam b'shem kavad ha'bayre, k'mayashamur chazal talmud chavim tzarech sheyibay echad m'shminu sheb'shminus, rakshatzarech lezoyim ma'oid sheyachshem ba'isa shah b'shiflus atzmei v'yoyma b'libe ani b'emes shafel ma'oid. U'mashani yoyse gavaz ulekvayt ha'bayre yizbarech shal atzmei ani tzarech, eina tzarech shum gavaz, shani telaz v'layishem mali kavad v'gavaz avilu machshav v'ktama. Yeah. The Balshamtiv says, you're quoting in the comment, that a person sometimes has to display a certain sense of exaltedness, but even then, it's in a way of humility, because I'm doing it as a servant of God. That itself is in a way of humility. Very well, and the Maimah will continue developing this theme. God willing, we will explore it in our next year, which is going to be Thursday morning, 730 a.m. There will be a sheer Thursday morning, and there will also be a sheer Friday morning, 7.30 a.m. I also want to take this opportunity of telling you that tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, 9.30 a.m., we have our weekly class for women, but men can also uh, tune in. That's right here on the yeshiva.net or on Zoom, and you can also ask your question. That's going to be tomorrow morning. Tomorrow night, Tuesday night, 8.30 p.m., we're going to be learning Lekutei Sichis, Parshas Pinchas, Volume 13, an incredible, incredible interpretation in Arashi about uh, the Carbon Tamid and Moshe searching for a new leader. That's going to be Tuesday, 8.30 p.m., Parshas Pinchas, and everybody is invited to that. Also right here on the yeshiva.net, that's not going to be on Zoom. In the meantime, I wish you a beautiful, meaningful, inspiring, uplifting day, and... A day filled with Avaidas Hashem. This class is brought to you by the Yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.